Uh, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 115. Psalm 115, we've been going through Luke recently, seeing a lot of Jesus in the gospel. Today we're going to try to see some Jesus and gospel in the Old Testament from Psalm 115. Children, you can find that. This is a trick my mom taught me. Hold your Bible like this, find the very middle of it, open it up. That should be Proverbs 1 or the end of Psalms. I just did it and found Psalm 108. That's pretty close. Psalm will be right in the middle, Psalm 115. That's where we'll be today, Psalm 115. I'm going to read it for us. It's a good chunk of verses here, about 18 of them. But uh, hopefully that will not overwhelm you as we read and study through Psalm 115 together. Follow along as I read. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Verse 8, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. And may the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. So says the Word of God. This is a psalm that the Hebrews would have used in worship, just like this kind of setting. They might sing it, they might read it aloud over and over again to get a sense of the glory of our God and our state as humans. And today what I want to do with this passage is I want to aim it and target our marriages, all right? I want to put our marriages in sights and aim this text right at it. I know some of you here are not married. I get that. I hope that you will stay with us. I know God has something from the text for you. I realize some of you sit here and you think, I'm in a healthy marriage. We're good. I want you to know that even Sean White needs to practice snowboarding. We all can grow here. The reality is most of us fit into a group where we need a lot of grace in our marriages. We need help. And God has given texts like this, his spirit, his word, and his church to help your marriage and to bless you in it. So that's what we're going to do here. We're going to aim this text right at our marriages today. And here's the main idea. Here's the main idea. Your number one marriage problem is yourself. All right? Probably not what you want to hear. <laughs> your number one marriage problem is yourself. Or more biblically spoken, your number one marriage problem is idolatry. Okay? It's your own idolatry. I'm currently trying to grow in my own marriage, and so I'm reading a book by Winston Smith called Marriage Matters, and I just read this passage that was helpful for me, and I wanted to read it to you here today. Here's a quote from Winston. He says, talking about our marriages, in an ordinary moment, 
Objective self-criticism is difficult. Spotting another person's, especially a spouse's, faults first and using them to explain your own unhappiness is only natural. But for things to be different, you have to try something different. You must begin the process of change by examining yourself. Your spouse has his or her own faults, but you can begin changing your marriage this instant by taking an honest look at yourself. Are there desires and fears that you've made into idols? Remember that even good things can become idols when our felt needs become demands. You can ask God's forgiveness for trying to make life work on your own. Tell him that you want to learn and to love him with your all. If your marriage is going to change, you need to change. It's easy to waste time waiting, hoping, perhaps insisting that your spouse change first. But sadly, you have no power to make another person change. But when you begin your quest for change by looking at yourself and your own need for change, then you can have hope. You have a responsibility and also the ability to change. But you can only do that in a lasting, meaningful way as you turn from your own idols and learn to live a life of true worship. And that's what this text is about today. Turning from your own idols and living a life of true worship yourself so that your marriage begins to produce fruit and hope in Jesus Christ. So let's look here at the psalm again together in 115 and zero in what, on what God's word says regarding idols. The author starts here, thankfully, with a robust God-centered view of the entire world. Look at verse 1 again. He says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. This guy is saying, let everything I do be to honor you. I don't want the credit. I don't want the glory. Even the normal moments in my marriage, I want God to receive the honor, the glory. Why? He gives a couple of reasons here you see in the text. First, because of the steadfast love of God, right? Second, because of his faithfulness. And when I think of God's steadfast love and his faithfulness, I think firstly and chiefly of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the personification of love and faithfulness. He showed constant compassion for his people. Think about Luke. We've been reading through Luke together. We see Jesus come to a paralytic and heal him. We see him cleanse a leper. We see him come to a woman caught in sin and offer her forgiveness. The blind see when they come to Jesus. Over and over we see his steadfast love and owe his faithfulness as he pursues his people all the way to the cross. Jesus never wavers from his mission Jesus is the great example of God's love and his faithfulness mentioned here. Paul says it like this in Philippians 2. Remember what Paul wrote? He said, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ. Christ. And as we think about our marriages today, we need to know that God would have us living for the glory of Christ. None to us, O Lord, not to us, but for the glory of Jesus. We forego face-saving in our marriages in order to reflect His forgiveness. We don't fixate on what our spouse hasn't done for us lately because we're content in Jesus. None to us, O oh Lord, none to us. That's the ideal. The psalmist starts with the ideal picture. Of course, we know that the world is broken, right? Our marriages aren't perfect. And so he now gives us a warning 
about some of the pitfalls of idolatry. He's speaking of idolatry in general, and he's going to compare the one true living God to the false idols of the people surrounding Israel. But the same idolatry that Israel struggled with is the same idolatry that we all feel in our own marriages. Let's keep reading here. Look at verses 2 and 3. The psalmist says, Why should the nations say, Where is their God? A picture. Bad things happening in the nation of Israel. Other countries looking on and saying, Where's your God? You're having trouble over here. Your God can't be that big. And so the psalmist is saying, why should the nation say this? Verse 3, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Notice what the psalmist says here about God. Three things. First, God is alive, right? God is alive. The psalmist communicates this by the simple phrase, our God is. Our God is. It's subtle, but it's quite profound. All other gods are dead. Ours is not. If they're dead, they will not satisfy you. Ours is alive, so he can satisfy you. Secondly, the psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. Our God is in the heavens. In a very real sense, he's bigger than creation. He's not limited to this earth. He lives in the heavens. And thirdly, the psalmist says here, God does, it, does all that he pleases. God does all that he pleases. Since he rules all, he submits to no one. Unlike the smaller gods of this world who rule nothing, King Jesus rules it all. It speaks to God's transcendence. He has no boundaries. He's not subject to the whims of its owner. Like other idols. And now watch. The psalmist is going to describe. The other idols of the nations. And we can learn from this about our own idolatry. Look in verse 4. He says. Their idols. Are silver and gold. The work of human hands. So he's going to describe the idols. Of the godless people. They're going to be a little different than our idols and our marriages, but they have some similarities that we can learn from. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hand. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. They don't make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Here's the point. We people are going to chase idols. That's what the psalmist is saying. That's God's word for you today. As a person, because of the junk you got from Adam, you're going to be prone to chase after idols. This week I was watching the opening ceremony of the Olympics with my kids. We were watching what's called the Parade of Nations, right? Where every single nation uh, goes across and makes a loop around the stadium. And we cheer for all of them, even the countries that only have one athlete. Kind of feel sorry for them, but we cheer for them. And as we were watching, we saw a nation come across called Chinese Taipei, right? And I was explaining to my kids that that is what we call Taiwan. Uh, we call them Chinese Taipei because there's a civil war. It's a bit messy, but it's really Taiwan. And as I was explaining that to them, they said, hey, is that where Tim and Holly Chilton live from our church, international workers that we have sent out? And I said, you're right, that's where they live. And by the way, you may have heard on the news, they've had severe earthquakes all over Taiwan, averaging one a day for the past month, and then some that are very large. Uh, so I was talking to the Chiltons. Uh, they're okay, but, uh, you know, they're going through... Uh, a lot of stress and issues regarding this. They said they're unharmed, but they remain a bit shaken. Eh. Hey, that's what they said? No, eh, that was my joke. But as I was thinking and talking to them about China, I was reminded of the first emperor of China. 
uh, the guy who took all of the warring parties in that region and solidified them in 221 BC. His name was Chen, Emperor Chen, and he did phenomenal things. Uh, he built the first Great Wall. He built the uh, city-large mausoleum underground that had the terracotta warriors that are really famous. Uh, he built a roadway system, connected all the country. This great king, but yet he was obsessed with immortality. Uh, he, he, he did went all these crazy things before he died at the age of 49. Uh, for instance, he uh, talked to his uh, supervisor, not a supervisor, his counselor, who was a magician. And he said, how can I live forever? And that guy said, well, if you just connect all of your gazillion palaces with tunnel system, that will allow you to live forever. And so he tried it, but no, didn't work. And then another guy said, hey, you need an elixir of life. And you can only find it on this hidden island. And so this emperor of all of the Asian world at that time goes on this crazy quest. He's on this boat. He rigs up this huge crossbow and he shoots this big whale. This is 200 BC. Crazy story. And he thinks the whale's going to give him eternal life. It doesn't. He tries to find this elixir of life. It all fails. He goes down as being this emperor that changed the world, but he's also a little crazy. He was also obsessed with immortality. And as I was reminded of that story, I thought, what a picture in an extreme way of some of the obsessions we have in our hearts, in our marriages. The Bible would call these obsessions idols. You know, we don't know why Chen went so crazy about living forever. Perhaps he had an obsession with pleasure. He just didn't want to feel the pain of death. Or maybe he was longing for approval. He thought, everybody will adore me if I live forever. I will constantly be adored. Or maybe he is power hungry. And he just thought, I want to control my own fate. I want to have power over my own fate so I can live forever. We don't know, but I suspect some of his longings were similar to ours. In our marriages, we have longings for comfort, intimacy, success, control, approval, power. And if we look at the idols mentioned here in the text, you'll notice something. They were apparently something that looked really good. They're made of gold and silver. If you would have seen these things, you would have been impressed. You see somebody walk in with a gold necklace, it usually turns your head. It wasn't long ago that uh, Prince William gave as an engagement ring to Kate Middleton, Princess Di's old blue sapphire ring with the oval diamond setting. It about broke the internet. People went crazy over this jewel that she got for her wedding present. These were impressive statues. They had hands and arms. If you would have seen them, you'd have said, that's a good work of art. And that's part of the point of the scriptures. Not all of our idols are necessarily bad things. They're just bad rulers, right? Your idols and your marriages can be good things, but bad rulers of the heart. In fact, if you look at verse 5 in the text, you're supposed to get the words dysfunctionality when you read this. You're supposed to get the sense that something's not right. They'll never work. If you read down in verse 5, there's mouths that can't talk. Ears that can't hear sound, right? Noses that can't smell. Throats that are mute. These idols have hands, but in a creepy way, they can't touch or feel anything. These statues have feet, yet they can't take a step. You're supposed to see how these idols in the Old Testament were dysfunctional. Similarly, we create things in our hearts. We obsess over things that are dysfunctional. The stress is on the bumbling futility of our hearts and minds to create something worthy of any type of worship. We do this, it just doesn't work for us. Our creations fall far short of the glory of God. So the question arises, how do we get out? How do we get at these idols in our marriages? What are they? And how can we get at them? 
That's what we'll look at here. I read a story this week about a writer, and he was talking about his own marriage. And he told a story of how he was, had a writing project due on a, a Monday, and he was spending Sunday afternoon, he had arranged with his wife that she would watch the kids for a couple of hours, and he would have two hours to complete his writing project. Well, when Sunday came along, uh, his wife went out and was supposed to come back at a certain time to watch the kids, and she got held up. and She didn't call. And he was waiting and waiting. He ended up having to watch the kids for two hours, and he didn't get his writing done. And so she comes in, boom, he unloads on her. Ironically, he was writing about gospel things, <laughs> right? And yet, when he didn't get his way, he exploded. When he was looking back at that situation, he said, you know what? It was such a big deal to me to write something that impressed people. When I didn't get to do it, my heart went crazy. And furthermore, when my wife walked in, I really want her to approve of me and respect me. And I felt like when she didn't come home on time and didn't call me, she didn't approve of me. And that crushed him. So he was 0 for 2 on his idols of approval. And his whole weekend spiraled. But thankfully, he was able to look at that and then process it later through a gospel lens. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 is going to be key here if you're going to make strides in your marriage, especially in fighting idols. What does verse 8 say? If you make and trust in these idols, you're going to become like them. Right? If you make and trust in an idol, you will become like it. There's an entire thread throughout the Bible that teaches this concept. It's a whole other sermon. We won't get in there. But verse 8 says it well enough. If you create and you trust in these idols, you will become like them. What are these idols? They're lifeless. They're cheap imitations of the exciting fulfillment that they promise. But here's the point. Worship something that's not alive, be it a statue or an emotion like approval, and your soul will encounter death. Because what you worship changes you. Now mercifully, verse 9 turns the corner. Had a lot of idle talk. Verse 9 focuses our eyes on God and the God who can change us. Look what we read here. O Israel, O people of God, O church, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is the help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Who is the Lord? Help. Shield. That's what you're supposed to get from this passage. What do you need in your marriage? You need help. And you need a shield. And that will come from God alone. Won't come from the approval of your spouse. Won't come from earthly pleasures and comfort won't come from any sense of power that you have. Your help and your shield will come from Jesus as seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. What does he promise to do? For those who trust in him, he promises to bless. Promises to be present. Promises to be near you comfort you, approve of you, empower you. That's what he means by bless. All of those who fear the Lord, you capture that promise. It is yours in Jesus. On and on he goes. That's the gospel of the Old Testament. Think about it. When we get to the New Testament, trusting in the Lord is done specifically by leaning into the perfect life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what you're holding on to. Fearing the Lord is standing in awe of all that Jesus has done for the redemption of God's people. And it's through our turning away 
from our obsessions, little obsessions, with things like comfort and approval and power, turning away and repenting of them and taking Jesus for all he is in the gospel, receiving his spirit, how we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how we fear God. We trust God. It's only then when we experience what the Bible calls being adopted into God's family. God sees us as his child. Right? And the phenomenal thing about living as a child of God is that this warning we have in 115.8 that says, if you worship something, you'll become like it. Right? This becomes reversed when we become God's children. In other words, if you want to die, trust in a dead idol. But if you want to live, trust in a living God, Jesus Christ. Whatever you worship, you're going to turn into. We see this vividly in 1 John. Remember what he said in 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3? John wrote it like this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. So God made us his children. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know, this is the key part, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I hope you caught it. Why will we be like Jesus one day? Because we see him as he is. That's what John said. Why will you be like an idol in your marriage? Dead and lifeless? Because you're fixating, even worshiping your own obsessions. The medicine is to fixate and worship Jesus, thereby receiving the promise that John has for us, we will be made more like him. The more you see of Jesus, the more you become like him. Worship will change us. It wasn't too long ago, I was sitting in marriage counseling with a couple, and uh, I asked them to describe what was going on, and uh, uh, the husband and the wife were both there, and the woman was very articulate, especially in describing their marriage. She was just really good with words. And so I said, well, describe the latest conflict. And uh, it was a doozy. And she painted a good picture. <laughs> you should be an artist with her words. It's very articulate. She described the whole thing. And uh, after she said it, I thought, well, I can encourage these folks with the hope of the gospel. And so I shared some encouraging things. And I saw the husband, who was kind of the guilty one in this conflict. And he, he perked up. He heard the gospel. He perked up. And I looked at her. And she sat there and her shoulders just went. <laughs> it was noticeable. And so I turned to her and I said, you know, what's up? This is good news. Jesus is with you in this. She said, I get it. What you're saying is good. But it's nothing new. The power is in the application. That's what she told me. The power is in the application. And she had something there, right? We can't just hear the good news, but we have to work hard at applying it in the moments of our relational tensions, our relational weaknesses, specifically in our marriages. And so that's what I want to do here with the rest of our time. Present a case study, if you would. A normal type of marriage conflict. And then let's walk through it trying to apply the good news of Jesus to where there might be idolatry in the marriage. Hopefully this will help you see a bit of your marriage and think through where you might be holding on to some idols. Okay, so ready, set, go. Here's the situation. Um, the couple is fighting again. It's an ordinary moment these days. Here's why they're fighting. They have agreed together, the husband and the wife, that uh, after work, 
she is going to take, uh, after work, he's going to come home, they're going to eat together, then she'll take the kids and he'll do the kitchen cleanup work. He'll do the dishes, he'll sweep, clean the table, and that's how life's going to work. He agreed to it, she agreed to it, they're good. Except on this day, he could not foresee that he'd be held up at work with this big pile of stressful extra stuff his boss dumped on him. So he comes home an hour late. He called her, but he comes home an hour late, and she's upstairs. Supper's over. She's with the kids. He walks in the door, dead tired, and what he sees in front of him is a messy kitchen. 20 minutes of cleanup. Maybe he has eight people in his house. 20 minutes to do the dishes. A lot of dishes. Instead of going towards the dishes, dude plops down on the couch, very tired, clicks out his device, goes to ESPN, spends the next 25 minutes relaxing inside the ESPN app. Now, after 25 minutes, the wife comes down the stairs, she surveys the situation, she announces Big surprise. The dishes are not done. And then she heads to the kitchen, slumped over. Off goes the device. Dude stands up and says, I wish you just spent one day in my shoes with a real job, with real responsibility, with my work. She turns around and it's on, baby. It is a fight. Now, this is completely fictional, okay? Just because I talked to Hunter yesterday does not mean this has anything to do with his life. Completely made up. But if you're like me, some elements of that story might ring home. Sound a little bit like some problems you might encounter. So let's think through it. First with the guy, the man. What idols might he have? So I can look at this man and you might say, Dude, just stop being lazy. Do the dishes. That's good advice, but it doesn't really get at his heart issues, right? It's not going to help him long term. He's got something going on inside of him that makes him say no to dishes, no to commitment, no to loving his wife, and yes to the couch, the device, and disappearing in sports. All right, so what might be going on? Well, he could be having, experiencing what we might call an idol of comfort or an idol of pleasure. He wants immediate comfort in the internet for the next 20 minutes. That dominates his thinking. He enjoys escaping more than he enjoys fighting the grime in the kitchen. Just gives him more immediate gratification. It's an idol of comfort. Well, how does the gospel address this? Great question to ask yourself. Where is, he, where is he failing to believe God? At what point is he failing to believe God? Or more personally, what point am I failing to believe God in my marriage? What is he failing to believe about God? Well, he's failing to realize that in the gospel, God has given us all of the comfort we need when Jesus connected you to the Father, He connecting you to eternal reservoirs of divine comfort dished out upon you through the Spirit of God. He's forgetting that through obedience, God has designed the greatest delight and pleasure that He could experience. A crucial concept in the Bible is that obeying Christ will give you Gladness and joy. He's forgetting that. He said he would do this. He decided not to. Decided to break his word. He's forgiving that. Hebrews 1.9, for instance. Hebrews 1.9 is a verse about Jesus and what he gained through obedience to God. Hebrews 9 doesn't speak to you, but it speaks to Jesus and it can apply to you Hebrews 1.9, about Jesus, it says, You have loved righteousness, and you have hated wickedness, Jesus. Therefore, God, 
your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. See that? Jesus earned gladness, happiness, joy, comfort. He earned that through his faithful obedience to God. It was the result that God had for him. An oil of gladness. In the moment, this guy has to trust in that. That's the trust point. If you're ever going to be an idol, there's going to be a trust point and you have to get past it. For him, that's what faith is in that moment. Not just saying, I trust that Jesus is my Savior. No, that's part of it. But the big part of it is, I trust that God can satisfy me in Christ through meeting my commitments to my wife. This is how he gets over idolatry. He puts away his idol of comfort. He chases after the comfort to be had in the gospel. What if he has an idol of approval going on in his heart? Look, this dude wants to be thought of as a hard worker. He goes out every day. He grinds. He gets it done. And the one person he wants approval of the most is the one he's screaming at right now, which is his wife, right? In some way, he lives for her approval. So his anger and the conflict arises out of the fact that he perceives that she disrespects him. She's not approving of me. Boom! He's blowing up. How does the gospel speak to this? Remember the psalmist, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but the glory goes to God. What's he failing to believe about God? He's failing to believe that in the gospel, God's approval is enough. Right? God would never adopt you and make you his child if he didn't approve of you. He sees you. He loves you. He wants to be near to you. He values you. He weeps over you. He sings over you. He approves of you in Jesus. What could be more? That's the hope of the gospel. God is not standing over you with an anvil ready to drop it like an old cartoon. Instead, he sees you as someone he utterly approves of in Jesus. Learning to live in the wonder of the acceptance of the Father is going to be key for this man to get past his idols and to have growth and fruit in his marriage. I read an article this week by uh, a writer named Marshall Segal. And he looks at Paul when he thinks about fighting this, these idols of approval. And here's what he said. It's a long quote, but you can handle it. Here's what he says. He said, the Apostle Paul lived differently. Apparently, Paul had been liberated from the need to be liked or even respected. He moved from town to town, in and out of crowds, anchored in the safety and satisfaction of knowing Jesus. Many adored him, even to the point of worshiping Paul. And others hated him, even to the point of trying to murder him. But he lives, great line, he lived and served above approval ratings. Right? Man, I wish somebody could say that about me. You live and you serve above approval ratings ratings from others, right? He worked for someone else's fame. Whatever that fame might cost him personally in popular opinion, he worked for God's fame. He abandoned, another great line, he abandoned the haunted hayride of human approval to walk Calvary's underground road to freedom and the fear of man. Freedom from the fear of man. How do we do that? Segal continues, he says, but as we retreat from the treacherous and counterfeit roller coaster of human approval and hide ourselves in Christ, we no longer need to fear. We're no longer tempted to boast. And we will no longer cower to please others. We will live instead for the pleasure of knowing God and being known by Him. So beware of acceptance, beware of rejection. Beware of followers and beware of enemies. Beware of praise. Beware of criticism. And above all, be, in, be content in what God says about you because you are in Christ. Find your identity and your confidence 
in him, not in what people think about you or in your status here in life. It will free us up to tell the world the beautiful and offensive message it desperately needs to hear. And it will free you up in your marriage. When one partner just loses it and says, Ah, oh, big surprise, the dishes aren't done. He doesn't have to respond as if he's controlled by an idol of approval. He can say, you know what, I screwed up. I blew that one. Let me go do the dishes. You take it easy. I'll fulfill my commitment because I know God approves of me even though I didn't do the dishes. He's still with me and I have confidence to say I confess I messed up. That's how we make progress in our marriages. Not to us, oh Lord, not to us. What about control? Maybe this guy has an idol of control that's messing him up in this situation. Husband wants to be king of the castle, right? He feels like having to do the dishes is a bit too controlling. Even though he agreed to it, still feels a little shackled by it. After all, the one in charge can change the rules, right? That's what he's tempted to think. How does the gospel address this? Well, what's this guy failing to believe? He's failing to believe that God's control is best. Right? He's failing to believe that there is delight in submission to the control of God the Father. God's control says, honor your words to your wife, man. He's failing to believe that that's a good thing. Think back to the gospel of Jesus. Big picture. You see the Father's control all over the gospel. In the beginning, he elected Jesus as the person who was going to save all of the cosmos. And then the Father sent Jesus in total control. And then the Father raised Jesus from the dead. We see the Father's control all over the gospel. And it's a good thing. It's a joyful thing. And our role and our joy in our marriages is to trust the control of the Father. What about the wife here in our case study? She was in many senses the victim here. She got wrong. But there still could be um, room for growth here. She made kind of a snarky comment. How can she grow here? First, she could be in her own heart struggling with an idol of comfort. Hers might be more long term. She's seen a pattern in this guy. He often chooses the couch over the chores. And so what she's doing is she's forecasting the next 20 years of her life of doing the dishes over and over and over again because she's not going to change. And that is very uncomfortable to her. It doesn't seem like a map of pleasure, what she's foreseeing in her mind. Well, what's she failing to believe about God? God can give her long-term comfort in the face of insurmountable odds. He's done that time and time again. He can come and meet you and give you joy and give you gladness in the midst of circumstances you would not prefer. Pick your Bible character. Many of them had the same experience. Hard circumstance. God meets them and comforts them. Gives them joy. Gives them blessing. How does the gospel address this? Well, God proves to us through the gospel and the resurrection that we have a forever relationship with him. When Jesus rose from the dead, that proved we will live forever in the comfort of the Father's arms. Her forecast that seems so tremendously awful from God's perspective our life here is so small. He's thinking forever I will give you comfort. The fact that Jesus didn't die forever ensures we will have access to the Spirit. And Jesus went away. He said, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm giving you the Spirit. And I'm going to prepare a place for you of indescribable comfort and pleasure and joy. That's this woman's future. It's comfort and pleasure in God. She has to believe that. 
She has to believe that. Maybe she herself is struggling with an idol of approval in the moment. Ever think this way? Man, if he really loved me, he wouldn't say that he's going to do something and not do it. He might not love me at all. You know, your heart keeps going down that path, right? Yearning for approval. Yearning for adoration. How does the gospel apply here? What's she failing to believe about God? God's approving love is all that she needs. God's approving love is all that she needs. As attractive as the storybook of a fine prince on a white horse with undying love is, it pales in comparison to the wonderful story of Jesus Christ loving his bride forever and ever throughout all eternity. There's no greater love than Jesus who laid down his life for his people. What about control? Maybe the wife is struggling here with some control. When her husband fails to do the dishes, her whole plan is shaken. What had to happen? She had to put the kids to bed and then spend the next 30 minutes cleaning the house up. Well, whatever she was going to do during that time just got shifted or totally swept off the table. For you who are planners, you like to have your evening pop, 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 pop. It gives you a sense of control. And some of us might make it into an idol. What is our hope when we have to reorganize our night and an idol for control pops out? I was driving here this morning and I had four kids and me, one before. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to text something before I start driving. Not a good texter. When it comes to texting, I'm all thumbs. So I'm texting and I'm fixing the brush, and I'm late. And then one of my blessed children, all he does is ask a question. But it requires me to think and to speak. And that's not how I had this plan. I had text, drive, concentrate, sermon. Innocent question. And I'm like, bah, 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 bah. I growled at him. It's like, whoa, where'd that come from? It's idol of control. Just I need to trust that in that moment what God has given me, a little question, is actually what's best for me. And we need to trust that in our marriages. Think about Luke 19, if you've been studying Luke with us. What happens when Jesus, the king of the whole world, comes into Jerusalem? It's a little out of his control. He's supposed to have a donkey. There's no donkey there. There's no room for him to have a feast. Later, one of his best friends betrays him in the woods. They have this kangaroo court trial for him. And the innocent son of God is dying. You could look at that and say, man, that's out of control. But the other perspective is, you know what? God ordered every single step for the joy of his son and for the redemption of all the cosmos. We must Trust that even in the absurd, God is ruling, he's controlling, he's worthy of our trust. I read a, uh, a word from an author named Nick McDonald this week. And I'll close with this, because in a way, this is, this is bad news. What I'm telling you is your heart tends to walk a little crooked, all right? Here's how uh, writer Nick McDonald, he writes a piece introducing himself as the idol of your heart. He writes this. He says, hello, I'm an idol. Now don't be afraid, it's just me. I notice you're turned off by my name, idol. It's okay, I get that a lot. Allow me to rename myself. I'm your family. I'm your bank account, your sex life the people who accept you. I'm your career. Call me your self-image, your ideal spouse, your law-keeping. I'm whatever you want me to be. I'm what you think about while you drive on the freeway. I'm your anxiety when you lay your head on the pillow. I'm where you turn when you need comfort. 
I'm what, your fail, I'm what your future cannot live without. And when you lose me, you're nothing. When you have me, you're the center of existence. You look up to all of those who have me. You look down on those who don't have me. You're controlled by those who offer me. You're furious at those who keep you from me. When I make a suggestion to you, you're compelled. When you cannot gratify me, I consume you. Nope, I cannot see you or hear you or speak back to you. But that's what you like about me. Nope, I'm never quite what you think I am. But that's why you keep coming back. And no, I don't love you. But I am there for you whenever you need me. And that's idolatry. And that's the sorry state of our heart. But here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus Christ has come and he stands here as better. Jesus is more delightful than any idol you can concoct or you can make with your hands. Jesus is better. That is a biblical promise. Aro is just grabbing onto it. Don't even have to understand it all. You just have to trust. The hows and the why questions, not as useful. We're just supposed to hang on and grip the reality that Christ is the better treasure. The promise is right there in the text in Psalm 115. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He'll bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He'll bless the house of your marriage if you turn to him and trust him and fear him. Oh, he'll bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. And that's the good news. God promises to give you a blessing in Jesus Christ, in your marriage, but the change starts with you. You must today repent of your idols and turn to Jesus through the hard work of believing the gospel and take him for all he is. The good news is that he has conquered and you will be victorious. Let's pray together. God, we do pray a prayer of hope. Thank you, O oh Lord, for promising to bless your people. Fighting our idols, not fun work. Looking to Jesus, secure in our adoption as his children. Grabbing our hope laid out so clearly in the Bible. That's good news. I pray for each and every one of us. May your spirit move in a mighty way. May we treasure Christ this week. Above and beyond all of our petty obsessions and idolatries. I pray for our marriages. In Jesus' name, amen.